0: Amen. So Acts chapter 25, uh, we're going to delve into the third uh, testimony, if you will, of Paul's uh, Paul's life. Luke records it three different times, one in Acts chapter 9, uh, Acts chapter 22, and then we're going to read today Acts chapter 26. Uh, Paul has been in defense mode uh, for the last two, three years of his life. He goes through five different trials as the book of Acts concludes. Uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, a number number 4 and 5 here. So that's what Acts chapter 24, or excuse me, 25 and 26 is about. Uh, so Will did say he didn't have much uh, preparation time or a little uh, whatever he shared up here about the communion. But the Spirit worked in a great way. The, the questions that Will asked in regards to focus and uh, the busyness of life and have you had any difficulty focusing on what truly matters are actually the very questions I have uh, written here. Leading into the sermon, so so way to go. So I'll just uh, I'll just lean uh, what we call piggybacking. I'll piggyback on Will uh, just to delve into that a little bit further. Uh, that our lives are complex. There's lots of stuff going on. We can compare our lives with others and, and other countries, uh, other scenarios, uh, and we would agree that our lives are not as complex as to those who are living through war right now in Ukraine. Uh, and in the surrounding areas, we would say that our lives aren't as complex as uh, even our dear dear sister Jess right now who has a parent uh, in the hospital. Uh, But those things are on our hearts, aren't they? The war is on our heart. Uh, Our our brothers and sisters are on our hearts, Uh, the world at whole. And we know that Ukraine is not the only place where war is going on. There are tribal wars going on as we speak. There are unspeakable things happening as we gather here uh, in the YMCA. And those things, depending on how Uh, connected you are, those things weigh on us. And then we just have the day-in, day-out stuff that Will was talking about. Some of you guys didn't make your bed this morning. My goodness, what, sheesh, but you have, that's fine, fine. but uh, you have uh, chores to get to, the things you didn't get to before the work week starts. You got to prepare for the work week ahead. All those things, I know how it goes. Uh, I remember being able to uh sunday as soon as church was over there was like elation because it's still the weekend but then there's a certain hour in the day on sunday where it just you're like oh gosh man and it's just heavy and you're like oh i gotta go back to work and you start thinking about that and you start preparing and you're like and uh that 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 still happens but i remember that kind of doom and gloom kind of preparation for the week and all of you guys are going to experience that in a few hours here sorry to bring that a little earlier uh you're welcome paul but uh, all that's there. And then there's stuff that we just don't know. And what I'm trying to communicate here is that there, there's just so much, as Will said, there's so much that's thrown at us. There's so much that's right in front of our face that we don't have the space. Let's just be honest. We, we say to ourselves, I don't have the space for the higher things. Even if I wanted to, I don't have the time. If I could, you know, like John, get Get paid to pray, and get if I could be in the full-time ministry. Well, I'd never miss a quiet time if I was in the full-time ministry. Like John ever thought that? Like, oh, well, who's he to, to speak about not having time? That's all you get to do. Uh, and and amen. I'm praying for you, so you're welcome. Pray for me whenever you find the time. Uh, but anyway, that's all there, and I, I'm not too far removed from feeling those ways. And uh, to be completely honest with you, you throw in summer break with two kids, uh, time goes by quickly. And there's not enough time in my my life where that's that's my sole purpose. Uh, But again, I'm in this boat with you. And then some of it isn't because the world's so complex, it's because we've decided to do certain things in our lives, right? We've decided to embark on certain endeavors. We've committed to our commitments. And then we find ourselves spinning those plates, right? So this sermon isn't all about, hey, quit your jobs, and then just focus on the eternal. That would be great. The monks did that, and thank God for them that we preserve preserved some of the scriptures, but that's the far end of the spectrum. And if we all become monks, then the world doesn't get reached. The gospel doesn't spread. It just gets into maintenance mode, and that's not what we want to be. So this sermon isn't about you know, throw off everything that's uh, all that you're alive and just kind of focus on uh, God but we've gotta learn how to live and focus on God simultaneously. We've gotta learn to be men and women who glory in our work and stay focused on God. We've gotta be men and women who know how to be parents that are engaged and focus on God. We've gotta learn how to go into seasons of suffering and focus on God. We've gotta go into seasons of um, empty nestering and learn how to focus on God. Use your new time to focus on God. For those who are young professionals and just starting your careers, where all your colleagues are running a mile a minute to climb the ladder, and you think, well, if I don't run with such intensity towards my, towards my profession like these guys are, I'm gonna get left behind. So you start to commit more hours, more engagement. And some of that is self-focused, but some of that's just like, there's no other way to operate within my, my job than run at this pace. But we've gotta learn how to be men and women who are in that but we stay focused on God. And that's my hope this morning, is that we learn how to do that just a little bit more today. And that every day we move towards knowing how to focus more on God a little bit more. So in Acts chapter 25, there's lots of names, there's lots of history. So I'm just gonna go through, I'm just gonna do an overview of chapter 25 without reading a word, God forbid. And then Acts 26, I'll read in its entirety. But we're introduced uh, to a man named Festus, and it says there in verse 1, Festus went up to Caesarea to Jerusalem. Festus, his name is Porcius Festus, was the welcome successor to Felix. So if you remember, Felix was the guy that Paul talked to his last trial, and now we're introduced to a new governor in Porcius Festus. Uh, Festus was, had assumed the governorship of Judea around the year uh, 60 AD. And he was a welcome successor to Felix, as I said. Felix was a bum and uh, was an was evil man. And Festus is going to have a little bit more of a conscience, which we'll see here in a little bit. Uh, he inherited all the troubles that Felix had going during his administration. And eventually this will culminate in a disaster in chapter, or in year 66 to 70 A.D. Does anyone know what happens in 70 A.D.? Yeah, the temple gets sacked by, by the Romans, right? So this is all building up to this tension, to this disaster of Rome finally putting the clamps down and, and dismissing the Jews from, from this, this holy land. But Festus uh, did not rule for very long. He only ruled for two years. We have no recollection of how he died, but he died in 62 AD. Uh, he, we do know that he was 70 years old when he started the job. So 70 plus two, so that's what we know. That's it. But uh, what what we'll see here is that this this interplay between the Romans and the Jewish authorities, the Roman pro, uh, counselors, governors, and the Jewish authorities in the Sanhedrin, they're playing off each other all the time. The Romans' number one goal was keep the peace. The, the, the Jewish leaders wanted to continue to, to exert their authority within their own providence. They wanted Jerusalem to obviously be free of Roman occupancy but they were at some points growing in their you know, kind of symbiotic relationship, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, to where we had the leaders in Jerusalem who loved the idea of the Romans being able to execute authority so that they could kind of stay in power. So they were under, kind of under this uh, kind of little brother scenario where I wanna be the man in Jerusalem and you Romans will help me keep my job. Does that make sense? So as much as they want them rid of, their, uh, of occupancy They like that the Romans helped keep them top dog in Jerusalem and in the leadership circles. So with the new governor, along with any new uh, politician, we all kind of have our hopes restored. Like, ooh, a new politician's in office. What's he gonna do or what's she gonna do for us? And we kind of hope that all happens in our favor. So they're in the same way expecting uh, Festus to give them great permission to have Paul executed. So new governor, not a lot of experience, Let's tell him once again what Paul did, and let's hope this guy allows us to do what we want to do with this, 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 uh, this guy who's stirring things up all the time and get him killed. So that's what he wanted. That's what they hoped for. So uh, Festus comes into power. They hope this change of venue which they ask for, hey, can you bring Paul back to Jerusalem? They hope that if we can get him back to Jerusalem, then we can try him under our laws and kill him. At this point, the Jews have brought Paul before two different death penalties, one by Roman law and one by the Jewish law. We know over the last two trials that neither of them have any uh, no, no witnesses, no evidence, nothing for either of those two things. And the Romans and the Jews both are like befuddled over and over again. The Romans are like, why are you bringing this guy to me? He's done nothing wrong. And that's happens here again with Festus. Paul's done nothing wrong. Why are you bringing this guy to me? but the Jews just wanna get rid of him and they say, bring him back to Jerusalem because they wanna be able to actually get him on the way to Jerusalem to kill him or just try him in the, in the courts there or in the, in the temple to have Paul killed. So that's what they want. Festus doesn't want to get the Jews mad because he's the new guy, right? Why would you ever want that? So he doesn't want to acquit Paul even though he sees Paul's done nothing wrong, I don't wanna acquit him because that'll make the guys I'm, I'm leading mad at me. So he's looking for a way out. All right, so that's kind of where he sits. He's in no man's land. So they're trying to bring him back to Jerusalem. Festus says, no, nah, I just got here. He had been in Caesarea three days before this trial was brought to his attention. So he had just moved into his palace along the Mediterranean Sea, tough, tough, tough. And now he's got this trial to deal with. And he says, you know what, I just moved in. These are, this is what Josephus, the historian, says about him, I just got here. I just got here. He's already in prison in Caesarea at my house. Why don't we just come back to my place and do this? So he didn't want to spend any more time than he needed to in Jerusalem. He just wanted to say hello to the new guys and then wants to go back home. So why don't you bring him there? He's already there and that's when the trial starts. So they try him all over again. The accusers restart their, restate their charges, nothing, no witnesses, no proof. The Sanhedrin just wants Paul dead. As a new governor, he concedes to the fact to have this trial, but he needs a lot of help. So eventually, what we'll see here, I'll draw your attention, is that the trial starts, Paul makes his defense in verse eight, says, I've done nothing wrong, we've heard that multiple times, against the Jewish law, or against the temple, or against Caesar. So these two death statements that your trials are trying to give me, not doing it, didn't do anything. So in verse nine, it says, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem? How about we just ask you to make this decision? Do you want to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Paul knew that if he goes to Jerusalem, he knows exactly what's going to happen. So he says there, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true... No one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. So at this point, Paul's like, I'm not going back to Jerusalem because I know what they're going to try to do to me there. So let's just move this show along the road. You're not going to help me. I don't trust you to help me, talking to to Festus. And I know I can't trust those guys back in Jerusalem. So you know what? I'm going to take my last right as a Roman citizen, which all Roman citizens had this right. If, they'd have, if they were under trial for something like profaning the temple or, or going against the government, if they were tried or accused of those things, they could say, I'm taking mine to Caesar. So if you had like a traffic violation, you can't say, to Caesar. No, that's not in the realm. You can't go there. Just like you can't go to traffic court and say, I'm taking this to the Supreme Court. Like, no, you just did a rolling stop. Like, you're not, doesn't need to go there. So Paul's case can go to Caesar. So he has that right, and he knows this is his best shot. Now, I'm not sure if you knew, but the, the emperor of Rome at this point was a guy named Nero. And Nero was the guy that ultimately persecuted the church, who burned part of the city himself, blamed it on the Christians, and eventually will behead Paul, and eventually will kill Peter, right? So we know this guy. However. Nero wasn't always a bad guy. So early on at this point, 60 AD to about 62, Nero was actually known as a pretty pretty nice guy. He was actually quite benevolent. He wasn't what we think when it comes to 64 and 65 AD. So there's something about being the emperor that just kind of makes you dark. Uh, Power corrupts most, right? So there he is. So when Paul says, I want to go to Caesar, he wasn't like this Nero guy is like the Nero that we know. Uh, Paul wasn't like, yeah, this, this guy's persecuting Christians already. Let me go talk to him. That's not the case in history yet. Just a few more years after this, and Nero will be that guy, and Paul will get, as will Peter, uh, what we know about him. Does that make sense? So that's all happening here. So that's kind of the golden age. He had a guy uh named seneca i'm talking about nero he had a guy named seneca in his ear all the time so that actually helped nero not be the devilish man that we knew he becomes Uh, so seneca helped speak a lot of reason to him so there was a golden age of two years and then nero became who we know him to be so festus back to him uh, festus after he confers with a council back in verse 12 uh, he says you have appealed to caesar to caesar you will go what we know about festus is I can't win with the Jews, and I can't win uh, with you. So I just got here. I want this to go well. So you said Caesar? That's great. Now it's his problem. Woohoo! So he is happy, happy as a clam, to say, yeah, you want to go to Caesar? I can do that. I can help you get there, buddy. I'll pay for your ticket. He's happy to do that because that is so, ultimately says to the Jews, hey, I, he asked. So he's got to go. That's his right. So you can't be mad at me. And again, he's now, you know, in a, in a spot where he can make some friends uh, with his new leadership position. Okay, so eventually we get to this guy um, named uh, King Agrippa, which is in verse 13, a few days later. Just for time's sake, King Agrippa, his name is Marcus Julius Agrippa II. Uh, Tony uh, Maletta, if you were here last week, spoke about him a little bit. Uh, Agrippa is the son of Agrippa the I the grandson of Aristobulus, which uh, again, and the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the one that killed all the babies in Bethlehem. So Marcus, Julius Agrippa II, he's got blood in the family. This is, uh, this is a, a, a murderous family. So what we'll see here with Agrippa, he becomes king uh, because he was a favorite of the emperor Claudius, who, who was before, before Nero. And he was 17 years old when his dad died, and he was too young to rule over his dad's domains. When his uncle died, you know what he, he got eaten by worms, that guy? Uh, And so he was 48 when his dad died, his uncle died in 48 AD, and Claudius appointed this guy, Agrippa II, to rule over some of this petty kingdoms in the northeast of Judea. In 53 AD, uh, Claudius gives Agrippa II more land, and that's essentially the Galilean areas. So now that this new governor comes into town agrippa only shows up because hey my territory bumps up against yours let me come down and let's let's be chumps so new guys in town he's coming just to say hi but agrippa ii was known by the romans as the expert on jewish religion so he knew all the ins and outs of the jewish religion so when he shows up festus is like hey let this guy share, let me share this story with you, because maybe you can help me out. So that's why Festus, or King Agrippa, gets involved. Uh, Agrippa II was also the curator of the temple. He was responsible for all the high priestly garments and all the money, all the dough, and the priestly vestments that kept coming in. So Agrippa was, to say, invested in the Jews, very much so. All right, so anyway, we see here in this trial, verse 23. You guys ready to read a little bit now? So this guy Agrippa shows up and he knows all that Paul's gonna talk about because one, a couple things, his mom uh, is very familiar uh, with all of this. Her, uh, her name is Cypros Cy- is, is his mom's name. She has a profound interest in the Jewish religion. So it actually rubbed off on King Agrippa II. And, of course, all his uncles gave him all the rundown of the past, so he's very familiar. All right, verse 23. Uh, The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, who in Latin, by the way, is Victoria, if you don't like the name Bernice. Uh, Bernice is Agrippa's younger sister by one year. All right, and she uh, is—do another study on her. She's interesting. She gets married like four or five times in the span of like five years and has an incestuous relationship with her brother and marries another man, just so the people stop spreading rumors. But they continue their love affair throughout their leadership. It's uh, pretty, pretty Roman, pretty nasty stuff. So. OK, so that's Bernice. Came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so as a result of this investigation, I might have something to write. So he's like, help me out with all this. I got to tell Caesar something. It's got to make sense. I'm new on the job. Please help me out King Agrippa. Help me write this essay to Caesar so I don't look foolish. Verse 27, for I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifically or specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now It was, with, it was because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison and when they they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Specifically, Stephen, if you recall that, right? Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Judea, or Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and that the first first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And we'll stop there for now. So Paul is happy to have Agrippa here because he finally has uh, an active listener, someone who's going to know what he's talking about. So notice the difference between his three testimonies. He doesn't get into that he was healed, that he was actually blinded and healed. That would be very confusing to to a Greek, uh, to the Greek audience here. So he says specific things about him being a Pharisee in the sect of the Pharisees, him being able to see these prophecies fulfilled. All the prophets wrote about this. So it's important as a side point is to know your audience, right? As we share about God's gospel, there are details to highlight about God's gospel that's going to speak to the people you're speaking to. Paul does that masterfully. In the three testimonies that he gives. So again, just something to uh, to learn as we continue to focus on God through our busy, busy lives. So Paul here is happy to hear, have Agrippa. He speaks to him very specifically about all that was happening. He shares his testimony again in verse 12 uh, through the end there of 18. And again, this is a point that has been reiterated over and over again in these trials. Is that God shows us that opposition can become opportunities. And I think we have to remember that all the time as that we're so busy and so much is happening and as we fix our eyes on God is to recognize that opposition gives us opportunities. It's an opportunity at the very least to learn the heart of God. Not all opposition is created equal. Sometimes opposition is just uh, people being ruthless. Sometimes opposition is just what we see in the world, the darkness that we experience all the time. Or opposition could be specifically in questioning your faith all those things are true but i believe those of those of us who want to fix our eyes on god we look for the opportunities not over just being overwhelmed by the opposition itself it is easy to get sam- to get smushed and sandwiched by the difficulties in this world that we cease to see opportunities to focus on God, or to talk about God, or to make others, or to help others rather, know about God. Have you ever been that spot where you're just so overwhelmed? There, There's no opportunity here. I just got to get out of this. I just got to escape or endure. So much I believe of our lives is just getting through it. Get through the work week, get through the drama, get through the teen years, get through the oil prices get through the gas prices get through this election get through that election get through this bad haircut get through we just get through stuff but there's opportunities in all on all things especially I believe God is telling us here especially when there's opposition there's opportunities Paul over and over again brings the opportunities from his trials to bring out testimonies trials to testimonies, opposition to opportunities. Despite our lives and all they all they are, whether self-inflicted or just because we're in the world, we need to see opportunities in the opposition. We need to see opportunities to share what God has done or is doing or will do in the trials. That's how we can learn to focus on God despite how busy and crazy things are. You know, we may look at the world and, and we hear Paul being commissioned Uh, to go out and preach and to rescue people, verse 17. And verse 18 says to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. The challenge here as we read this, especially if you are a Christian or you're you're a disciple, is to kind of see, you know what? That's already happened for me and the world needs it to happen to them. And we kind of read this and we're like, that's right. The world is so broken, they need to get some light. They need to have their eyes open, yes, they are under the power of darkness, and we can kind of take this uh, situation where we can kind of enter into this text the same way King Agrippa entered into this room with some pomp, like, oh yeah, you know what I've had that transformation, and amen for that and I, I do think for those of us who claim to be Christians that uh, or are Christians, that that transformation from not being a Christian to being a Christian is not just simply Uh, something you slide into. It is a radical, it is a supernatural reality that brings about this transformation in Paul, and that's the reality for all of us. Think about your testimony. It's not, yeah, I just showed up to church and said a prayer, or I set up to church and I had an emotional service, asked a prayer, went up to the preacher for five minutes, and boom, that was my radical transformation. Now, God works through all those things. He can open our eyes through those things, but this radical shift from darkness to light, it requires God's power for those things to happen. Now, Paul, we'd all love it, I think, maybe not, but we'd all love, you know, Jesus speak to us and say, oh man, an unquestionable moment in our lives to bring about that transformation. I don't know about being blinded. I don't think I want to sign up for that, but Paul had that go on, and that helped him to see his need. There's a uh, there's an idiom, a common idiom here in verse, verse 14, where Jesus says to Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Now that's an agrarian term that people would know, literally sticks that are kind of pointed as sharp as, a, uh, a, as roasting a marshmallow, and it sticks into the back of their hamstrings. If the donkey or goat doesn't want to move, they kick against it, and they're essentially stabbing themselves in the hamstrings. Uh, that's, that's no fun. However, in the Greek world, it was a common idiom, to be, to be stated when you're opposing God, when you're actually opposing a deity trying to influence you. So God's trying to get your attention, and you're not listening. That's the same thing as kicking against the goats. So God's trying to get your attention. And while we would love God getting our attention through a nice bright light, the truth is he doesn't often do that, if, if at all. He'll get it through a lesson or a sermon or a, a situation. He'll get it through turmoil, a hardship, or even a gift. He's always trying to get our attention. The challenge is are we listening? And when life gets busy, it's easy to not have the space to listen. When the world creeps in, or we've busied ourselves so much, it's easy for us to not pay attention. To these things, And we might ask for, well, God, if you want my attention, you know, get the blinding light out, and then I can't deny it. That'd be great. But there's so many different ways God works, and I believe it's up to us in the busyness of our lives to create the space to focus on him. You know, there's a common verse that we often hear, and it's often crocheted on pillows, or you'll find it on your Facebook wall. Be still and know that I am God. That takes work, it takes effort. None of us, no matter how busy you are, how much empty nestering you've already done, how easy your job is or how rigorous your job is, none of us know how to be still without maximum effort. It takes effort. You know, so many of us have said, I've heard it from so many different parents, I've said it to other parents too, hey, you know, when things settle down, uh, when things get less busy, Uh, When I don't have as much on my plate, then I'll, hey, when things aren't so complicated or, you know, after the summer's over, and then guess what? They're back to school. Well, after they get out of school, then, oh, next summer, will. and it's just like, it's never ending. After vacation, after I retire, after this, after my colonoscopy, whatever it is, there's always something. And you know what that something is, and every single one of us kick the can down the road to keep us from being still and know God deeper. Some of us are self-inflicting ourselves to choke out God from our lives. You know what my big takeaway from COVID was? Learning how to rest. Learning how to be still and not being able to do things. Taught me to figure out something else to do. Oh, and by the way, there's this great opportunity to know God deeper. And now the temptation, oh, man, with COVID, it's still kind of hanging around. But, you know, we're so tempted to run faster than I ever ran before like a dog set off a leash like let's go and I can get so busy so fast I can be cranking on all the ministry stuff I can have all these activities and guess what my activities are doing just choking God out but I'm doing godly activities I'm doing things I'm I'm meeting with you I'm praying I'm doing all this I'm reading more I'm doing but God gets squeezed out of even my ministry activities Paul right here gives us a clear example. Paul was more fervent than any of us will ever be. He was dead set on what he was doing was from God and he missed God. So much so that Jesus had to interrupt him and say, oh, all that stuff you're doing is actually against me. We're not above this. And while I thank God you're not running around trying to do what Paul was doing, you know what, there's a good chance you're running around choking out God there's a good chance that we all need to reshift our priorities to make sure that we're giving God all that he can. And again, it's not a, you, you, you figure it out and then you just coast. Just get back in the fight of figuring it out. And that's really all that we can expect is just figuring it out. Learning from God, listening, fighting for that. Some mornings are crazy. You had the most fantastic plans to give yourself space and something comes up. It's all happened to us and it will happen again. I remember that story, I woke up early and I was going to drive out to the Blue Ridge Parkway to have a quiet time only to come out to my tire being flat in my own driveway. I was like, what in the world? And it was from my roofers that came two years prior, there was a roofing nail somewhere made its way through two years and got into my tire and you know what quiet time on the blue ridge not happening and i had another appointment i need to get to so guess what my morning was fixing the tire and dropping 100 beans on a new tire yay and it was okay what's up with this and that happens not so much the flat tire but that's that kind of stuff happens more often than we could count but what do we do do we get comfortable with those interruptions choking out our focus on God? Do we get set on, you know what, that's just the way it's gonna be? You know, the danger for us is that we can get so busy with the practical things of this life that we have no room for everlasting. You know, when Paul is preaching or sharing his testimony, eventually Agrippa tells tells him in verse 24, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has drive in, driven you insane. What he's saying here in, in, in the Greek is what we've heard others say about you or about me or someone else. Let's be practical, Paul. Let's get real, Paul. It's basically like, you're focusing all this big stuff. Let's just, come on, think about this life. Let's get practical. What you're talking about is too superfluous. Let's get practical. And Paul's saying, I'm not insane. I'm not out of my mind. You know these things. He says in verse 25, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. And I would like to speak speak, uh, freely to you in verse 26. He says, none of this has escaped your notice. It's not done in a corner. That's another idiom of this time. And he says there in verse 27, which really embarrasses King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. And King Erippa at that point says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? If you have a King James Version, it might translate to, um, you almost made me a Christian. It's an incorrect translation, but it's really fun to think about. You almost made me a Christian. In just this short time of you telling me all your stories, you almost made me a Christian. And I think how true of that is true. It can be of our hearts and the world. You almost made me a Christian, but you know what got me? Oh, I don't have time for the, for the big everlasting stuff. I've gotta get practical. I've gotta get real. I gotta focus on what's right in front of me. I don't have time to think about these things. I've gotta get on with my life, the things of urgency this week, the kids, the groceries, the bills, all the things that, that Will talked about. You know, the Jews have this thing called the Sabbath. And it was one of the greatest, one of the Ten Commandments was to was to keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy. And the Sabbath was a time where God initiated for his people to take a break. Sabbath literally means stop. Take a break. And Americans, we don't like that. We'll sleep when we die. Some of you guys are like, this right. I think you gotta think differently. The Jews had to work tirelessly. When we were in Israel in 2015, 2016, Sabbath began on Saturday morning. Friday night was the busiest night so that they would have nothing to do. They did all their food prep, Will. They did all their food prep Friday night so that they had nothing to make. And then they got kind of, you know, a little too much on the don't work and they got a little legalistic with it. But uh, no electricity, no ovens, no nothing. Nothing can work so that we can spend time with God and talk about what he's done as a family. And the whole family, kids, parents, would work tirelessly throughout the week to prepare for nothing. So that they would just have the time to think about the eternal, to think about the everlasting, to think about what God has done and what he might be up to. I don't know if we're ready some of us here for a whole day but can you do that for 30 minutes? Can you work hard to clear out an hour? Can you reorient your lives just a little bit? I'm not being facetious. I'm not trying to shame but just try to figure it out. I think you're in good company and stuff comes up. So if stuff comes up, you know, don't get guilted out. It's just Have I become so crowded out by the practical, just like King Agrippa, that I don't have time to truly live like a Christian? I truly don't have time for some of us in here to become a Christian. I don't have the time to really spend, to let God wash over with what he wants of me and what he wants me to do. The very purpose that he gives Paul. If Paul had been so consumed with the practical, he would have missed his purpose. Some of us are grinding our wheels without our purpose because we haven't spent the time to listen. So what great could come from just working? If we're gonna work for something, let's work to carve out the time. What could come of all this? I think we'll be more aware of the opportunities that God's giving us. I think we'll know our stories better. I think we'll find ourselves thinking about what is true and reasonable rather than what's cray-cray. I think we'll find ourselves, I believe we'll find ourselves above some of the petty things that get us choked out and start living for the everlasting. I think we'll find that we'll have more, we actually have more time than we think we do. I think we'll find ourselves praying more than we ever have. To conclude here, Samuel Chadwick quoted one many, many moons ago, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He makes our, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Whether it's prayer or. Bible study or just going out, finding, finding yourself on Roanoke River, just thinking about what God, who God is, his character, what he's been up to. When you're driving to the supermarket for that business that you got to get done there, just the moments of thinking about what God has done in your life. Or when you're at dinner tonight to go around the table and just talk about what God might be up to in each of your children's lives. Or just to spend the time quiet before you go to bed thinking about all of God's faithfulness, even in today. These are worthwhile endeavors, and we're introduced over and over again with men who are so caught up in all the things, all their responsibilities, that they miss these incredible stories of faith right in front of them. That Festus, Agrippa, Felix, Bernice, you name it, none of them become Christians, none of them become disciples but they had had Paul himself sharing the gospel in that moment, and they missed it. Let that not be the same for us. Let's embrace the work to carve out the time and enjoy that and enjoy the fight to find that time. And let us know that our enemy, when we do, he's hurting big time. And God gives us that gift of rest. So let's seize it. Hopefully if we can carve that time out, As busy as we are, we can know God better. Amen? We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. Be sure to check back every Sunday for new sermons listed right here. Subscribe to us on YouTube and like us on Facebook to stay in touch with all that God is doing in the Roanoke Valley Church. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.